there. In Ephesians chapter 1, just before where Scott took us a few minutes ago, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Father, that is a mystery in those words, no matter how long we would look and study and talk about them together, a mystery that we could never fully unpack or comprehend, that the perfect, holy, spotless God somehow has looked at us, fallen, broken, rebellious sinners, and through Christ has looked at us and made us holy and blameless because of the blood that Jesus shed. Father, we know that that sacrifice, for that to happen, was a sacrifice of infinite cost. It cost the life of your son, and I thank you that we've been reminded of that this morning already in some of the words that we've sung and and in coming to the table of communion, Father, to be reminded that, that there really was a time when the Lord Jesus came to earth, that he laid down his life. It was broken and bruised, that he bled and died. That he did that not as a martyr, he did it not as an example, but he did it as a sacrifice for me and for each one of us here this morning. And then he rose from the dead triumphant to show us the price has been paid, the sacrifice is complete, that when he said it is finished, he really did mean it. And Father, we stand before you as believers this morning grateful for that, beyond grateful for that, that because of what was accomplished by Jesus, we can be saved. You can look at our lives and pronounce holy, acceptable, blameless, not because of who we are, not because of the things that we've done, but because Jesus paid the price so that we could go free. Father, thank you for that gift of redemption. Thank you for that gift of new life. Thank you for the hope that even in our darkest days, that once Jesus is with us, he never forsakes us. And Father, that's what brings, or it's one of the many things that brings us back here week after week. Father, we need to be reminded, we need to be encouraged. Father, we don't ever want to grow distant or cold or indifferent to the story of Jesus and his love for us. So we come back to worship, Father, and we come back to your word, and now we're going to open it up, and we're going to look at it together, and Father, as we prepare to do that, I ask myself once again, who am I to talk to anyone about your word? Father, we need you so much to be the one who teaches. So we pray that as we open your word, that you'd send your Holy Spirit, and that he would come in all of his fullness and all of his great power to guide every heart here this morning in truth, to guard every heart here this morning from error and confusion, to deliver us from every burden and weight and confusion and misunderstanding and all the stuff that we drag in here with us, Father, to know that we really can cast it at your feet and then by the power and the presence of your wonderful Holy Spirit, you can enable us through the frailty of preaching the word to see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to the scriptures. Father, may we see Jesus only. This morning as we go to the scriptures and when we leave, God, let it be rejoicing because even if our circumstances haven't changed, either even if there's still darkness on the path and a long way to go, that we go knowing that we have a savior who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it back up again and that he goes before us back into the battle. Be with us in all that follows now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you're doing so, we'll take a moment, as always, and dismiss for Children's Church. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, maybe first time here in a while, a Children's Church is something we offer to the five-year-olds up to the second graders. Um, They can make their way out that door and uh, just follow the herd, and they'll know where to go. uh, They'll spend some time in the scriptures. 
Uh, we also, for the kids who are just a little bit older, and I try to remember to, to say this every now and then, uh, we have sermon notes. If you've got kids from about third grade up to sixth grade on the table back there, and they are more than welcome to go back and grab those if that would be helpful so that they can follow along, write down what's on the screen, um, follow along with the sermon. So there's notes for the boys and girls. But I want all of us, what we need to do if we're going to do that is get into our Bible. So take out the, your copy of the Bible and uh, turn to Psalm 140. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 140. If you don't have one, get next to someone who does or follow the kids back to that table and grab one for yourself. I'm a big believer that it's hearing and seeing the Word of God together uh, just impresses it even more deeply. And so you're going to want to be able to look at the Scriptures as we go through them. What we're doing, again, for those of you who may be new, maybe uh, first time here in a while, we actually are coming very, very close, just in a couple of more Sundays, to the end of a series of studies in the book of Psalms. Uh, We've looked at, by the time we're done, we'll have looked at about a dozen Psalms with the very specific purpose of seeing what the Psalms can teach us about prayer. What can the Psalms offer us? How can they guide us? Can they be our mentors in conversing with God in every season of life? So we're not just celebrating the Psalms for what they are, beautiful in and of themselves, but we're saying, what can the Psalms teach us? They are the original prayer book, so Psalms, Lord, use the Psalms to teach us to pray. And and this morning we are going to continue that, as I said, in Psalm 140. We're going to read it together in just a moment, but before we do, let me say that, that the more I spend time in the Psalms, reading it on my own. As part of a a prayer group, we pray through the Psalms every single Friday. The more time I spend in the Psalms, the more I read them and reflect on them, the more impressed I continue to be at how the Psalms really do, in fact, speak into and, and show us how to pray in every season of life. That the Psalms have something to teach us about conversing with God no matter what kind of season or condition or situation we're in. Uh, if you've been here at all in this series so far, you've probably discovered along the way, we've seen that the Psalms show us for one thing, how to worship God, how to come before him and praise him simply for who he is, not asking for anything, not expecting or demanding something, but simply praising him for the glory of who he is. We've discovered along the way that the Psalms can show us, they can guide us in giving thanks for our particular blessings. We've seen how the Psalms can teach us to pray when we're going through hard seasons, when we're carrying heavy burdens. How do I take those burdens and give them back to the Lord? How do I talk to God about the stuff that breaks my heart? We've seen the Psalms guide us in how to navigate difficult relationships. How does it play out under our own roofs and in our own homes? And of course, the Psalms we've seen call us together as God's people, as a church family, as a body. They call us together to sing his praises. And I really do hope that to some extent or another, as we've gone through these studies, as we've looked at the Psalms together, you've been discovering those things, that, those things too, that the Psalms really do have something to say about how to talk to God in every season of life. As Eugene Peterson puts it in his book, Answering God, I have quoted it almost every week. I am going to continue to do so. If you don't have a copy, get a copy. I think you'll be blessed by it. But here's what Eugene Peterson says, and he does it in far simpler terms when he tells us that psalm prayer, in other words, praying through the psalms, psalm prayer enters into the way things are. 
And I think that's important because a lot of times it's easy to look at the Psalms and go, they're kind of pie in the sky and dreamy and it's harps and clouds and angels and, and, and all this exalted praise, which there is that sort of thing, high and lofty exalted praise in the Psalms. But what Peterson is saying, and he's saying so correctly, is Psalms, they're not some far off dreamland that none of us can ever achieve until we get home to heaven to be with Jesus. No, the Psalms talk about the life you're living today. The Psalms teach us how to pray in the circumstances we are walking in today. But then he adds the following, Peterson does. He says, psalm prayer enters into the way things are, but then he adds this statement, and this is where we're headed in God's word this morning. He says, and psalm prayer, when it gets there, finds that the way things are is pretty bad. (laughs) That evil is encountered. That wickedness is confronted. And having made that observation, what Peterson goes on to say is that therefore what we as believers in Jesus Christ need to come to grips with, we need to understand that in a very real sense, prayer, Peterson says, is combat. Prayer is combat because it takes us not just into the joyful places, but into the hard ones as well. And one place that fact is absolutely clear is in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 140. So grab your Bible. And follow along as we look at what the Word of God says here. And this is just one, let me just tell you, of many psalms that take this form, that cover this similar ground. But this is what the Word of God says in Psalm 140. We're told at the beginning that it was a psalm for the choir director, for God's people to look at together. It was written by David, and here's what David said. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who've purposed to trip up my feet. The proud have hidden a trap for me in cords. They've spread a net by the wayside. They've set snares for me. Selah. I said to the Lord, you are my God. So give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. O God, the the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not promote his evil device that they may not be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, may the mischief of their lips cover them. May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire into deep pits from which they cannot rise. May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. I know, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell in your presence. Let me ask you something as we dig into this psalm this morning. I just want you to think about this, because again, it's really where we're headed in God's Word. As you look around at the world you live in, as you look around at the world we live in, do you see, listen to me, stuff that you hate? As you look around at this world in which we live in today, do you see stuff that you hate? I'm not talking about broccoli for dinner. I'm not talking about winter in Iowa. I mean the kind of stuff that whether you see it on the television screen or you see it playing out on your own city block, I'm talking about the kind of stuff that particularly as a believer in Jesus Christ, you see it going on, you understand what's happening, and it makes you say, that shouldn't go on, that shouldn't happen at all. Human beings should not be allowed to treat one another 
in that way? Do you see stuff in this world that you hate? Things that if you had the power to intervene, to step in, you would bring immediately to a decisive and a complete end. Let me answer the question for you. Of course you do. Of course you do. And so here's the next question we need to think about here in the Psalms. How do we talk about it with the Lord? How do we converse with God? We've talked about how to converse with him about the stuff we love. We've talked about how to converse with him about the blessings in our lives. We've talked about how to converse with him uh, through some of life's challenges and and all that other stuff. How do we converse with God about the stuff in this world that we hate? Can we talk with him about it? And if so, what do we say? Well, in this psalm, I believe, David gives us four clues. Four clues about how we can converse with God. How can we pray about the stuff that we hate. And as always, just taking them in the order David brings them, the first one that I believe he confronts us with or sets before us is this. The first thing you have to do when you go to God in prayer about the evil and the wickedness and and the stuff in this world that we hate is we've got to acknowledge, number one, evil's presence. We must be willing to acknowledge the actual presence of evil. Listen again to how David speaks, how he writes in the first five verses. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who are devising evil things in their hearts. It's not accidental what they're doing. It's very intentional. Sharpening their tongues like a serpent, poison of a viper under their lips. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked ones. Preserve me again from violent men who are purposely tripping up my feet, hidden traps for me, and and all the rest. And, and, And as you look at those, just allow me to sort of summarize and state the obvious, which is you don't pray in that way unless you are in very deep trouble. And that's why David was praying. David was in a place we don't know the situation. We don't know what inspired the circumstances that inspired David to write this psalm, but it's very, very clear from the very first line. David was in trouble. Serious trouble. Dangerous trouble. I mean, just look again, starting in verse 1 at his request. Rescue me. Preserve me. Keep me. Protect. Deliver me from what? Evil men. Violent people. Who, as he says, the NLT, the New Living Translation, renders it, who he says, they are plotting against me, and they've set a trap to catch me. And I can't help but wonder, those first couple of selahs, you see that in there, that word a couple of times in the first five verses, we've talked about that before. Selah is a, we believe anyway, a sort of a pause for thoughtful, worshipful reflection, just a, okay, what have I said? And I can't help but wonder, If in those first two selahs in the first five verses, what David isn't doing there is sort of just pausing to collect himself and say, Lord, listen, if you don't show up, I am a dead man. If you don't show up, if you don't show me what to do, I am literally, physically a dead man. And my point is simply this, that David apparently in this psalm had no problem whatsoever acknowledging what so many people in our world today seem to find so difficult to admit, even some Christians, which is that evil is real. That the world is not a neutral place. That if we all just passed out a few more roses and gave a few more hugs and kisses and wrote some night notes, everything would be okay. No, that's not the case at all. David's saying the world is a dangerous, wicked place. So we got read or came across part of an, an interview or an article about the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan. 
In that position as head of the, the UN, it took him to all sorts of the world's worst hotspots for war and famine and violence and all the rest. And, and he once said, in reflecting on all those travels and all those things he'd seen, he said, I still don't understand how there can be so much evil in the world. Don't, why won't people wake up? Why won't they change? I don't understand. He specifically commented on a conversation he once had uh, with, uh, with the, the Serbian war criminal, uh, uh, former warlord Milosevic. Some of you remember in the 90s, the war in Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia. Milosevic was sort of the, the top man in that, and he was guilty of trying to commit genocide against his enemies. He did all sorts of wicked things. Well, they sat down once after he'd been captured, head of the UN and this Serbian war criminal, and, and Kofi Annan said, he continued to say, I, I still don't get it. He said Milosevic will talk about his days when he was a banker in New York City. He said he speaks English. <laughs> he sounds like a rational, reasonable human being. And then he asked the question again, how does someone behave like such a normal human being and then suddenly turn so evil? Well, and what may come as a surprise to some, the book of Psalms gives us the answer. Of all places in Scripture, Psalms answers the question because what it is affirming and what David's affirming right here is that at the root of every problem humanity faces, big or small, is sin. Paul's just restating it in Ephesians chapter 6 when he tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, our battle is not our struggle against flesh and blood, right? He said, no, our battle is not about what we can see. Our battle is with principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and we can't see them, but they're more real than what we can see. Sin, wickedness, is the issue. Now listen, I'm not saying, because it's not what Scripture says, that, that David here is somehow giving us permission to harbor hate or to act hatefully toward every little thing that irritates and gets under our skin. It's not what he's saying, it's not what I'm saying either, but what I am saying, because I believe it's what David is, is teaching us here, is that when we encounter evil in this world, the first thing to do is call it what it is. Call it what it is. It's evil. It's sin. And then David is showing us, take it to the Lord in prayer. You take him all your other stuff. We take him this too. And when we do, in doing so, he tells us there's a second thing to keep in mind. Second thing to understand when we see things in this world that we hate because they're evil and they're wrong and they're wicked. Number one, we've got to acknowledge evil's presence to begin with. And then secondly, remember our refuge. Remember that in God... We have a refuge. Because, you know, whatever the trouble is that we hate, whatever it may be, maybe you look and you, you know, it's the persecution of, of believers, really persecution of anybody around the world, people suffering for their faith, maybe in the Middle East. Or, or you look at terrorism in Europe and on our own soil, as we've seen as well. You look at the abandonment of children and the exploitation of women in all corners of of the world. Maybe it's the, the brokenness that you witness up close in your own life. All of it. What David says next in verses 6 and 7 is, is that we really can run to it with God, run, run with it to God. And, and much more than that, we can run to God with that stuff in a spirit and an attitude of hope. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. He delivers a lot of bad news in verses 1 through 5, but he doesn't let it linger. He doesn't let us stay there because he says this. I said, look at verse 6 in your Bible. I said to the Lord, you are my God. 
Give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have, you already have covered my head in the day of battle. Now, now typically, just so you know, this is the part of the sermon where I usually stop and I, I ask you a question like this. Do you believe that God is bigger than the evil in your life? Do you believe that God is bigger than the the, the wickedness and the sin and and the stuff that you hate? Do you believe that God is in control and and sovereign over all that stuff, whatever it is that stirs that emotion, that very real emotion of hate within you? This is normally the spot where I do that, but I'm not doing that this morning. Not going to ask you that question because frankly, and I say this with all the love and the respect that I can muster, I don't care whether you believe it or not. Because whether or not you believe it, the Bible says that's the way it is. God is in control of the wickedness of this world. God is sovereign over the brokenness and the badness and the really terrible stuff. He doesn't need our vote and he doesn't need our approval. David is just saying it right out here. This is the way it is, folks. It's really, really bad, verses 1 through 5. But God is a refuge for his people, verses 6 and 7. So the question isn't, is Jesus big enough to handle the problem? It isn't, is the Lord a sufficient refuge? Those questions have already been asked and answered. The question is, listen to me, is he your refuge? Is he your safe place? Is Jesus your savior? And do you run with it to him? He is what he is. Always has been, always will be, but is he your refuge? In conversing with him about the stuff that you hate, have you asked him to shelter you? Have you remembered that he's your one true safe place? Because a huge part of of praying through the stuff that we hate is knowing it's okay to take it to him because he's ready and he knows and he can handle it. How do we pray about the stuff that we hate? First of all, we have to realize why we hate it because it's sin. Not everything we hate is sin. We have to check our own hearts. You understand that. But when we see wickedness, what the Bible calls sin, we call it what it is, we run to Jesus, and then here, the third thing David tells us is how to pray when we get there, all right? The third thing he tells us is having acknowledged the reality of the situation, realizing that Jesus is our one true safe refuge. When we get there, what we do is plead for God's swift justice. The third clue about how to pray about the stuff that we hate, about the wickedness and brokenness here on planet earth is to plead that God would execute justice swiftly. And as I already mentioned, we don't know for sure what inspired David to write this psalm. There's no clue. What he, was, what he was going through, what was going on, what had come up. But if I was a betting man, a safe bet would be, a safe guess, if you prefer, would be that it may well have been written at that season when David was on the run from King Saul. Some of you know the story. Saul's the king, and for, the long t- for a long time, he and David were tight. He's like a father figure to David, and they were friends, and, and David went to war for him. But somewhere along the line, Saul lost his mind. He went crazy, and he decided now he was going to fight with him. And he wanted David dead. He really did, and he tried to kill him. The Bible suggests for 10, 15, maybe 20 years, David was on the run from King Saul because Saul wanted to take him out. 
And I think that's a safe guess as to what may have been going on, what may have inspired this psalm, because it sure seems to warrant a request like the one David makes in verse 8. Look again at your Bible. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not promote his evil device that they may not be exalted. That is just a fancy way of saying don't let him keep doing what he's been doing. What he has planned, what he's trying to accomplish, Lord, don't let him win. And I would suggest to you that that seems like a reasonable way to pray for our enemies, doesn't it? Just stop them. Don't let them do it anymore. And I think that's valid. However, if you were paying attention the first time I read the psalm, you realize David's just warming up in verse 8, all right? Check out what he says in verse 9. As for the head of those who surround me, may the mischief of their lips, that is their wicked words, cover them. May, <laughs> may burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire. Remember that whole Sodom and Gomorrah act, Lord? Kind of what I'm after here. Verse 10. May they be cast into deep pits from which they cannot rise. May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil, may the evil that they're doing hunt the violent man speedily. We read that and go, really? <laughs> Can we pray that way? We know Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. But is this what Jesus was talking about here? Is this what he wants us to do? What's David thinking? Well, remember, and here's what we have to remember in this instance. And this is why I say to you, try to say very, very often and say to myself in the Bible, when you're studying it, context is king. Okay? Remember the context. Remember verses 1 through 5. David's not dealing with the stuff that gets under all our skin, just irritable stuff, you know, waiting in line too long at the store, you know, stuck in traffic, uh, something breaks. In. He's not talking about that kind of hate. He's talking about wickedness. And he's talking about evil that he confronts in his life and that he has confronted and that he is on the run from. And what had he done already? He'd acknowledged the problem was evil. He acknowledged the problem and in the situation he is was sinful men doing sinful things who didn't just want to marginalize David. Again, they wanted to wipe him out. And so David started by acknowledging the reality of evil. And when you acknowledge the reality of evil, one way or another, it's going to shape the way you pray. It's going to shape how you pray about those things. And, and, and I mean, just the fact of the matter is this. That if you water down the reality of evil, if you try to take evil things and, and put a nice new happy name on it, if you try to dismiss that sin is part of the equation entirely, pardon me, but you're going to pray like a bit of a sissy. And David was not praying like a bit of a sissy here. He was praying like a man hot with anger at what he saw happening and how it was hurting so many people. More than that, though, I want you to look at how David, specifically how David prayed for, for, for justice here, because that's what he's praying for. He's praying for God's justice. He knows that God's righteous, he knows that God's just, and he's praying God will act accordingly. But here's what he didn't do, okay? Everybody say, here's what he didn't do. All right, here's what he didn't do. What David didn't do is ask God for permission to take matters into his own hands. He didn't say, Lord, let me avenge my enemies because I've got a few ideas about how I can take them out. Now, if you look very specifically at what David says here in these verses, what he does is not ask for permission to take matters in his own hands. He turns it back over to God. His plea in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 is that the Lord, the name there, remember the names from last week, Jehovah, the eternal, self-existent, one, true, holy, living God, that he would administer justice, that 
he would handle the problem and that he would do it quickly and that he would do it swiftly and that he would do it completely. What David says is, Lord, you stop my enemies in their tracks. Lord, you take that sin that they're spinning out and you use it like a boomerang and bring it back around. Not on, not on me, not on your people, on them. Lord, you rise up to your people's defense. You bring the wicked ones to a screeching halt. You head them off at every pass. You cut them down, what they're doing, so that they can't rise up again. You say, that's awfully harsh. Yeah, for sure. But are we content? As we pray, we understand God is sovereign. We understand God has a timetable. But are we really okay with one more believer being martyred? Just one. Are we okay with one more human being being bought and sold? Just one. Are we okay with one more insult, one more attack, one more terrorist bomb detonating? Just one. Or do we want God to move now? Do we want God to move swiftly? That's what David's praying for here. He's praying for swift... Look again at verse 11. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. Now, what God does with the evil man, when he, that's God's business. But again, that's what David's saying. Lord, I want you to do it. I want you to handle it. You say, well, that's so Old Testament. It's so eye for an eye and, and whatever. Well, turn to Revelation chapter 6. New, that's about as New Testament as you can get, Revelation chapter 6. And in Revelation chapter 6, John tells us this is how they're praying in heaven as the end of the world is unfolding as as the last days are uh, running out. We're told that in heaven, Revelation 6, verse 9, that when the Lamb, that's Jesus, broke the fifth seal. We don't have time to explain all the seals, just let's follow where we are. John said, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God. Martyrs. Because of the testimony which they had maintained. They stood up for Jesus and somebody took him out because of it. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long... O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? They're in heaven praying that way, consistent with what David is praying here. Don't let evil continue. And, and if you're struggling, and I would understand if you are, I understand but if you're struggling with the, maybe the legitimacy, are we really allowed? Should we pray that way? You know what I think really in this instance legitimizes this kind of prayer more than anything else is this fact. That underneath it all, what David is doing as he prays this way about his enemies and about wickedness and about evil and all the rest, what legitimizes it more than anything else, asking God to execute swift justice is that by doing it the way he did, Lord, you do it, what he is bringing to the center of the equation is he is exercising faith. God, I trust you. I ask you to do it because I have my plans, but I believe you know better. And what legitimizes this prayer is faith is at the center of the equation. And remember what it says in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But by faith... In Old Testament times, they shut lions' mouths and women received their dead back. And go read Hebrews 11. By faith. By faith. And this is a prayer that's full of faith. God, I am going to trust you to do it. Ask him to act on our behalf instead of the other way around. 
that he knows exactly what to do, when to do it, and that in his perfect timing, he will. Once again, we put things back in our Father's hands. How do we pray about the stuff we hate? We acknowledge the reality of evil. We remember that God is our refuge. We plead for him to execute justice. He's a just God. We pray in accordance with that. One more thing. This is what we do according to verses 12 and 13. This is at least what David did, and I think he's giving us a solid example. Is having done all that, having laid it in his hands, we rest. Everybody say rest. Rest. We rest in the rest of the story. We rest in the rest of the story. A few years ago, World News Magazine, Christian News Magazine, ran the story, a little sidebar story about Bessie. Bessie is an eight-foot Burmese python, pet Burmese python, who escaped from her owner's cage, tank, whatever, in an apartment complex out in Ohio. 57,000 multi-tenant apartment complex, there is an eight-foot Burmese python on the loose. And for two weeks, they couldn't find her. Throughout that, in fact, they brought in a team of searchers and plumbers to take every pipe apart and look in every nook and cranny. Where is the eight-foot Burmese python that has escaped? And after two solid weeks of night and day searching, they found Bessie, the Burmese python, in ceiling panels, curled up in the ceiling panels of the apartment just below from where she had escaped. And they got her out, got her safe, and all the rest. And in the aftermath of that, of course, the news is there Reporter asks one of the other residents of the apartment complex how they felt about that. And as you might say, if it were you, he said, we will definitely sleep better tonight. Because <laughs> for two weeks, what have they been doing? Looking under the covers, peeking under the bed, looking behind the refrigerator. Is there a python in my house? I can't rest easy until I know where it is. I tell you that because when it comes to the evil things we hate, the sin and the brokenness, the wickedness in this world, in our lives, in this world, the snake is still on the loose, right? Evil's still a reality. Wickedness happens every day. But that was true for David, too. He wrote this in the midst of the storm, not in the aftermath. At least that's the way he writes, as if he's in the middle of it. And yet I get the impression, despite the fact that he's still on the run, hiding out in caves and holes in the ground and whatever else he was doing for those 10, 15, 12, if the, indeed that was the situation. But I get the impression from verses 12 and 13 that even so, David was sleeping well. David was resting easy. Though his enemies were great, he knew his God was greater. Look at verses 12 and 13 one more time. I know, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. In other words, more fancy language to say, God knows when his people are hurting and he's there. I know he will maintain the cause of the afflicted. I know he will bring justice for the poor. Surely, I know the righteous will give thanks to your name. I know that the upright will dwell in your presence. That's how David finished praying through his hate. He was resting in the rest of the story that he couldn't see yet. That he didn't know when it was going to happen. He didn't know how it was going to happen. He didn't know what it was going to look like, but he was resting there. What do I know? I know that my God is faithful. I know that he is strong. I know that he's just, and as a believer, I know that he loves me. 
And David said, I will rest in that place. And just to quote Eugene Peterson one more time on this matter of conversing with God about the evils we encounter, he says, and, and, and very rightly so, he said, you know, it's, quote, it's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs, with the good stuff, right? Praise the Lord. Got a new car. Praise the Lord. Kid graduated from high school. Praise the Lord. Another paycheck, another week. God is good. It's easy. It's right. But he says it's somewhat more difficult to be honest with our hurts. Life is hard. Things are a mess. It's hard to be honest before God. Is it safe to do? But then he adds this statement. He says, and it is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. Can I go to him with it? Can I talk to him about it? Let me ask this a very practical question. If you can't go to God with it, where are you going to go? You know what the answer is? Nowhere good. <laughs> Nowhere where you're going to find any hope. Nowhere where there's going to be any answers. We can take him our hallelujahs. Take him our hurts. We can talk to him about the stuff that we hate. And if we're in the wrong, he'll show us, no doubt. That's his job. He does it well. But if we're right, he'll take it. And he'll use it. And somehow he will work. We cast the burden on him. We ask him to come quickly to our rescue. We remember that he's the, the one true safe place and that he's in the business of turning trials into triumph. And that's why when we take our hate to him, we have one thing working in our favor that can keep us coming back, and it is the hope of the miraculous, that our God is going to do something. Surely, David said, I know, God will maintain the cause of the afflicted. And that's why the big idea of the message this morning very, very simple, very, very clear. Take the stuff you hate to Jesus. He will sort it out. He will purify what needs purification. He will rescue those who need rescue, and he will answer. He will sustain in the meantime. Father, what most of us struggle with is we're waiting for that last thing. We're trying to rest in the rest of the story, and we can't. We don't sleep well. We're worried about evil. We're torn up about all that stuff, Lord. And as we've looked at this this morning, I have no doubt that in different hearts, you've very clearly brought to the surface just some of these very things. I don't need to name them, Lord. You, you do that just fine. Father, help us to remember to understand that when we converse with you, everything is on the table. Everything is fair game. Lord, where we're wrong, you always come alongside and, and show us what to do and what our part might be, how to get it right. But Father, you know that sometimes we look and it, it, it's just what we see, what we're experiencing, what we're witnessing is, is wrong. Lord, help those here this morning who are in the meantime, who are trying to rest in the rest of the story. Thank you that we have this incredible book, this track record, thousands of years of you, sooner or later, sometimes in the most unusual ways, coming to the rescue of your suffering people. Father, thank you that we can bring it all to you that we can cast it all at the feet of Jesus and know that we won't be turned away. We love you, Lord. We thank you for reminding us of these things this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen.